And good morning and welcome to The Age Stage. My name is Paula Dunn and I'm joined today by Brendan Telfel. Welcome, Brendan. Paula, thank you very much indeed. Very good to be here, sitting in for Brody once again this fine Thursday morning. So thank you very much indeed for making space for a little old moi. Oh, I'm really glad somebody's sitting there, Brendan, <laughs> no, I can tell you. <laughs> not a problem at all. No, it's good to be back. We love the age stage. And, we do. Uh, we certainly enjoy getting into some of the topics. And we've got some beauties today as well. Looking we forward have. to it very much indeed. Yes, a very exciting program today. And as always, the age stage is a program that looks at issues you know, that are affecting older Australians and um, where it's made possible by the Village Baxter, the Village Glen and Encore Living for that regional alternative. And so we're going to be joined by our friends in a moment. We are indeed. Um, so today we have uh, Peter Nilsons here. He's in the uh, studio with us, Operations Officer for the Village Glen, also Stuart Shaw from Village Baxter. But before then and a little bit later in the show, mm-hmm. we've got a couple of other guests as well. We have. We're going to be talking to Annie Butler. Now, Annie is Assistant Federal Secretary of the Australian Nursing and Midwifery Federation about the nat- national campaign to make aged care ratios law. And also Anne Riley. Uh, and Anne is, uh, it's National Volunteers Week, by the way, Brendan. It is, and we yes. are powered by volunteers. We are, yay to us. So we understand <laughs> the whole issue of volunteerism. We love it very much, and we're looking forward to having a bit of a discussion. Yes, we are. And Anne's going to be talking to us about um, dementia. Uh, and she's a spokesperson from Dementia Australia, so that'll be interesting as well. So Anne Riley, a little bit later on in the program, mm-hmm. and Annie Butler as well, so uh, two guests to look forward to. That's later in the program, but first off, of course, as I was saying, we have uh, two uh, major guests here today. Uh, we have Peter, and uh, we also have uh, Stuart as well. Gentlemen, good morning. Welcome good back. Good morning. Good morning, morning Brendan. Good, yeah. to, good to see you. Hi, Paula. How are you? Sorry, I missed last week's show. But yeah, we missed you, Stuart. Oh, I- we I'm, missed you I'm so much. Rich with Brendan sitting in the booth here with us. Oh, for goodness <laughs> sake. Station manager, can we know a better accolade well, for well, us? I listened to it on the, on the web. On the, mm-hmm. Yeah? Yes. The World Wide Web. How good was it? Was oh, it was terrific. Program. I thought it was a great program. <laughs> you were, you were always outstanding. Peter Nilsson is Chief Operations Officer at the Village Glen and Stuart Shaw of the Village Baxter as well. Now, if I may, before you get started. Yes. Um, a great segue about the volunteers, because tonight at the Village Glen... Thursday our, night. Yeah, is our volunteers' dinner. Oh, really? Excellent. And we've got 63 of them. And we, oh, we okay. are giving... Chaz and I are giving them all dinner and thanking them for their efforts. What a good What a great idea, ask, Brendan. Yeah, That's it? a great idea. Please, this is where I get very busy with the desk here and, um, you know, talk amongst yourselves. Thank our you. volunteers are awesome. We are. Yes. I didn't know it was Volunteers Week. It is Volunteers yes. Week. It's, it's, all a, it's a bit hush-hush, but, but it is. And I, yeah, So the big edict, I, my, yeah. I, all I do is I send out the All Points Bulletin and thank everybody indeed. Mm-hmm. But we are powered by volunteers oh, here. Absolutely. And it's an extraordinary uh, contribution that RWPFM is making to the Community Voice. And uh, I wish we were in a similar position to be able to celebrate like you can, Peter. But I'm sure uh, your team deserve every moment that you and Chaz mm-hmm. will spend you know, on it. Sure, in, in we a lot should of take com- the hat around. Yes. We should. But in, in a lot of countries, Singapore uh, is, is certainly one. They make a, such a big deal out of Volunteers Week. It is on the TV. Really? It's widely promoted. And what a great thing to actually be doing to mm-hmm. recognise those sorts of people yes, in yes. society. We're, we couldn't and exist without them. Yeah, no. At all. You know, as part of our government acquittal processes, uh, in, on some of our, our programs, we, we have to estimate 
what the contribution of volunteers is to us as an organisation mm-hmm. and then try and specify that in hours, yeah. which, you know, is a very loose concept. Yes. I mean, government could never afford to turn that into a funded service no. with, with volunteerism throughout society. That's for sure. So it is certainly just an excellent thing. Yes. And good on you, Peter, for, yeah, well, for yes. having uh, well done. dinner tonight. And, I... and my fear, looking over the horizon, is that our residents and and their friends have always been volunteers. I'm not sure our generation, Stuart, are. So what happens in 20 years' time when you and I are relying on volunteers? So, so this is a really interesting point that you make because I have this discussion often with the Lions Clubs and also Rotary, mm. and they as groups are also beginning to suffer somewhat. The millennials yes. are giving their time, but they're a lot more selective about the amount of time they will give mm. and the type of giving that they want to give up as well, if That's you, if right. you get my point. Yeah. Um, so yes, they're there, but not in the bucketfuls that previous generations were that saw them, saw it as a, a responsibility, a sort of a mm. social responsibility. They get it, but they don't get it quite as much, I don't think. So if you were to look at your current resident base, do you find that you're getting the same contribution from new residents? No. As opposed to old? And, and we have the same issue. No, that's you the know? point I'm making. Yeah. yeah. Our residents would generally say that the newer residents coming in are not willing to take over the kiosk. Have an or, expectation mm, yeah. that they're there and others will serve them. Yeah, and so it's a really interesting dynamic as mm-hmm. the generations change. Mm, yep. Mm. Well, and we don't even have tuck shops in schools anymore, so isn't that you? where it all... No, you don't. No, they don't. Well, that's the nanny state, though, isn't it, where they change. You had to get, you know, health food programs and you couldn't cook a mm. sausage anymore because... But um, kids actually... Someone's phone's ringing, Stuart. <laughs> not, certainly not it's the, mine. It's the Volunteer Association just <laughs> reminding us that they want to... It's, it's my volunteers reminding us that I've got to turn on a dinner for them tonight. There wasn't a fire alarm, was it? They okay. don't have to evacuate. So we could do a whole program on that, but we, we won't. We're going to talk about something really interesting, Why aren't we, Why don't we, we Peter? do a program one day with some volunteers? We might. That's a really good idea. Excuse me. I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. I've stole your thunder. I am a volunteer. (laughs) Yeah, we're talking to the volunteers. (laughs) All right, but we're going to talk about something really interesting, an article that That was in The Age. (laughs) No, this article is very interesting. It is. Stuart. Yes. So earlier this week, Peter. Earlier this week, Stuart, there was an article in The Age uh, which took my um, fancy in as much as clearly it was reporting on an aged care issue and as you know, in the past, they've all been very negative. This one was not negative. In fact, it was well written, in my view, because it, it just took the high ground and told the story without having a view, which is great. That's mm-hmm. innovative for journalism, mm. isn't it? Mm, it is. <laughs> I'm glad so, you said that because I was thinking it. <laughs> so they, they tell the story about one of our larger providers have, tra- have introduced a policy whereby uh, they're... Because they see their business as a residential business and not a hospital, that their residents uh, will not be disturbed during the evening and being checked on by the staff unless there's a very good reason why they should. In essence, let them sleep through. Mm. Now, and the article was virtually saying that the policy was driven by this company from their dementia people to say that um, hospitals clearly have to check on their patients because... It's acute care, mm. whereas 
nursing homes are not acute care, they're residential care. You wouldn't consider home. dementia acute care? I no, mean, there must no, be levels no, of it. No? No. No, not at all. No. Okay. So the, 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 they're arguing this is down the consumer-directed care path and it's innovative because that hasn't been forced upon us yet in, in that space. It has in the home care space. And the government are talking about consumer-directed care. And the, the concept of consumer-directed care is what do you want and we'll deliver it. Mm-hmm. So they're now asking their residents and giving them the choice, do you want to be disturbed or not? And clearly there are some people, dementia people, who have yes. acute issues. It could be... Um, falls risks, et cetera, going to the mm. toilet, where they clearly need to be assisted. But other than that, let them sleep. Yes. And don't wake them at 8 o'clock or 7 o'clock for breakfast. Let yeah. them wake. Yes. Um, now, it's a great article telling that story, and then it tells the story from the other side mm. where they talk to the Nurses and Midwives Federation who subscribe to conspiracy theory, and their view is that, no, no, what's happening here is here's another reason to have less staff on. So mm. it's all about saving money in the facility. And to the credit of the company, they say, no, 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 it's nothing to do with that. It's really trying to address that this is at your home and we will try and give you the best homely experience we can. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that's laudable. It, it is, but it comes down to a definition of that care and that level of care, does yeah. it not? And so obviously a provider here might be at odds with the nursing facilitators. Well, Why would there be that... Variation in definition, then. Well, I, I'm, I'm thinking. I, I, I agree with. I'm not saying I agree with their policy. I like the way they're thinking because mm-hmm. one size doesn't fit all, Stuart, does it? Yeah. You, if you look at one of our accreditation standards, is about sleep, and how do you promote a person's sleep habits to make certain they can get the best sleep possible? Now, I happen to be a particularly light sleeper. You know, if 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 a drop of water hits the basin in the in the ensuite, I'm awake. Hello, and that's it like, for the night. That's it for the <laughs> night. And I ponder each time that I look at that particular outcome that's, that's supposed to enable me to get my best sleep possible. If that door opens on my room, I'm awake. You know, I am a very sensitive sleeper, and, I, and I've and I've then always thrashed for three hours. Yeah, and yeah. I've, but I've mm. always struggled with the concept that. It is an abnormal thing for a person to open the door to your bedroom um, at home uh, for, for just to make certain that you're doing okay. So, so why... Yeah, but you're not in care at home but, as such as but, you are but, in a resident. But my care needs may have no bearing upon me being checked. I mean, but I'm they not may. At 20, but, I am not at risk 24 hours a day. But that, mm-hmm. that's where it comes back to that definition again, yes. does it not, Stuart? Who is making the definition about the level of care that that particular resident requires? Where does that definition come from? Is that the ACAD assessment? Well, no, it's not, no? The, it's not the assessment. Certainly the, one of the accreditation outcomes is to make certain that a person's getting adequate sleep. Mm-hmm. How do you do that unless you go in to see if they're asleep? Which seems to be the ultimate tautology. <laughs> But wouldn't, but wouldn't you assess them? Wouldn't you assess them for their needs before you? And and that's really what this policy is saying. Yeah. That if a person is capable of making the decision that I don't want the door to be open, but mm. I'm quite happy to 
to you know to have uninterrupted sleep, then I should have the right to do so. Indeed, and mm. that's, that's an expression mm. of free will and, 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 and care. Of course it is. Um, surely we have technology that might be getting into this oh, example now we as well, yes. where we have monitoring systems. We surely. Do. Yeah, we well, do. you do, yeah, because babies do. Hmm. Certainly they do. Certainly if you're out of bed, uh, there are monitors available to actually record that. Recording sleep... No, not recording sleep, but certainly but, uh, observation. Right. By the people who are falls, we typically have low, low beds in nursing homes. Yes, mm. and if they're really, particularly dementia and falls risk is a bad combination because the people who have dementia don't have the cognitive skills to know they're at risk of falling. That's right. So they do silly things. They yeah. don't use their walker, etc., because mm. they haven't got the capacity to process that. Thing. Mm. So we put. On, in their, by their beds, these pressure mats. So yep. as soon as they put their foot on it and got mm. out of bed, alarm goes an alarm off. goes off and the nurse on duty knows mm. that that person's moving yeah. around the room. They'll mm. come and make sure if they're going to the toilet that they get there safely. And just for clarity, that's an alarm ringing on the nurse pager, not an alarm as a fire alarm mm. waking up everybody yeah. else yeah. who yeah. are trying to get their good night's sleep. Yeah, I know mm. Dad had one of those mm. when yeah. he was in care. So there are monitor, there are subtle ways in which you can monitor mm. a person overnight mm-hmm. and during the day for, for that matter. Mm. But the issue of whether someone's asleep or just lying there is, is a moot point. Because you're not wired up to a machine, as you may be in a hospital. Uh, so if you've had surgery, you'll mm. generally have your vitals being monitored uh, immediately after surgery. Mm. So if you stop breathing, yes, you know, there, there mm. will be an alarm going out. And that's probably a code... But code the, red. the mm. thing for me in reading the article was good on them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because that's not what we all do. So clearly they're thinking outside the square and... They're working out what's best for their residents, which is not what we all we all do. What's best for our residents, but but I'm not aware. I'm crossing myself. I hadn't thought of it. I think it's a not that such as a good idea. But just thinking about the service we offer and how can we do it better. And clearly, they are doing that. And and that's because of a consumer directed care yes. uh, mantra. Yeah. And it depends how seriously we want to go down that particular track for people. Now, in an old, old, in the ideal world, of course, you know, the consumer would dictate everything that happens to them. There are some realities of life that may make that not possible. You know, if I want lobster every second day and, and fish every second day, you know, lobster and what it, whatever it might be, and, uh, and I want my meal time at And a you can afford it. Well, no, it's coming out of my service fee, yes, my, yeah. my, my monthly fee, which, you know, may, you know, I don't care that it doesn't cover things like lobster. Don't but like lobster, Stuart. No, I, I'm not a lobster eater. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm I not, agree. I'm actually not a lobster eater. <laughs> no, me either. I'm trying to just think of something that mm-hmm. is beyond Crayfish. the normal cost <laughs> constraints of an organisation. Rather have a glass of nice Shiraz. Well, that's equally out of a range of... You know, we'll go for the Crittenden's. Well, while, well, while we, uh, while gentlemen and Paula, we consider those options and what we like on our menus, why don't we take a bit of a break here? Just remind everybody, you're tuned up to RWPFM, your local radio station, broadcasting from studios. We're in the Bendigo Bank Studio, incidentally, today. Mm-hmm. This is the Age Stage. We're going to take a break. When we come back, more of the Age Stage. Stay tuned.
And welcome back to The Age Stage. My name is Paula Dunn and I'm here today with Stuart Shaw and Peter Nilsson. And we're going to talk a little bit about flu injections, guys. Yes. Have you had yours? No, I haven't, but I'm going to. Are you, why would you do that? I've always done it. Yeah, but that's not a... Because I'm frightened of getting the flu. Are you really? I am. Okay. However, this morning mm-hmm. at our management meeting, we were discussing the very issue of the government edict that we as providers of residential care Mm -hmm. um, have to offer all of our staff a flu injection. It's not compulsory that they have it, but if they don't have it, we have to have a policy in place to protect our residents. Now, some of my staff had the view that how dare they tell me what I'm going to stick in my veins. I I agree totally. What do you think, Stuart? I have a slightly different view. And we we discussed this with Kim, didn't we, some time ago, did we not? Oh, did we? It came came up basically as duty of care and what you need to do in terms of securing residences. Yes. Yes. So so let's let's just consider the broader picture. For for people who generally say they don't want to get a flu shot is because they would say, I don't get the flu. You know, I, I am immune to the flu. Therefore, why should I have to go and get a flu shot? Is, would that be a fair statement? No, there I don't think... religious reasons as well. I don't think so, Stuart. I, I, will, I won't not have the flu injections, and, and, and I'm not, I don't say I'll never get the flu or I'm immune to the flu. I just don't agree with being told that I must have So in an environment in, in aged care where we are dealing with a, a, yeah. frail a, a, a compromised group of people, mm. mm-hmm. we would be saying to those staff, and the government, in fact, would be saying to both staff, there's a duty of care mm. that you cannot just, you know, expect to care for someone yep. in case you are carrying the flu. But hasn't it been said, and I think it was Kim that said it actually, that most of, you know, the, the um, when residents contract the flu, it's done by the visitors that yes, come in, cer- certainly children and, and, and families. The That's right, yep. exactly. Yeah. So it's not actually the carers. You know, but you can only control what, can, what, you, what you, you have at your disposal. Yes, I understand. Well, our Director of Nursing made a very impassioned statement last week that for people who don't get the flu, you are actually the carrier. I <laughs> And... <laughs> Because you are immune to it, you carry it unknowingly. So you are, in fact, ground zero for... The rest of us. For the rest of us. And that is a very interesting argument to run because just because you're immune and you mm-hmm. don't know that you're carrying, you can affect everybody else around you. And, and that compromises um, our clients uh, and our staff. I'm pleased to say that last, in fact, this time last week, oh, a bit, bit earlier this time last week, so Thursday morning last week, uh, 109 of our staff went and got their flu jab, including me. Oh, I'm sure and drug companies uh, are just jumping was, up and down about that. You know, well, we were very impressed with that. We would like to see 100%. Consider a hospital. Now, it used to be mandatory in a hospital environment for staff to have the flu shot because you are dealing with compromised people. If it's okay there... Why is it not okay within a residential aged care facility where you're equally dealing with people who are compromised, immunocompromised? I don't think it's the problem. I think the problem starts when you're being, when people are being told you must have. But if it's, the com- flu shot. If it's compulsory in a hospital environment, 
Yeah. So they're being told. Yeah. So what's, what's your position there, Paula? Well, I don't work in a hospital environment, Stuart. But let's say you did. But I don't. I know you don't. I, I've, I've, got, I've got an issue anyway. I've spoken to a couple of immunologists about all this. How can they give us a flu virus, a preventative virus or an exposure to a virus which has mutated in the 12 months since the That's virus has been created in the first place exactly. anyway? The last time I had a flu jab, I ended up with this sort of catatonic state. Mm. I was shaking uncontrollably. Oh, you must have the flu shot, mm. says my doctor. Sure, mm-hmm. okay, I'll have it. And I'm like a zombie by about midnight that night. I've never had a flu shot since, simply because it just defies my sort of logic that you can't invent a virus which is mutating in the 12 months since the one that's supposed to be protecting you has been created. How does that work? Certainly last year's virus mutated very quickly. Didn't it? And it caught everybody by mm. surprise. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And if, you'd, if you had waited until you got your flu shot around May last year when the, uh, the quadrivalent... The, Quad revived, oh, I still can't say it, but the, the four strain <laughs> um, went in, then you stood a better chance. If you went when you only had the, the three strain uh, one, then you had no immunisation against the flu as it, as it transpired. This year the fourth strain uh, is available uh, now. We say our staff had it. And, uh, and we just think that's a very responsible thing to do. No side effect whatsoever. Can I ask a question? How many of you here know somebody who had the flu last year, the actual influenza virus. How many? I did. I do know yeah? a couple of people. Two people. And Yes, two people. And indeed, it, uh, it also uh, transformed itself into a very, very severe bacterial infection, mm-hmm. which in both cases ended these people, one in hospital, with pneumonia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So certainly within, I mean, I, I'm presuming your facility, Peter, uh, at Tea Tree had the same problem that we did at we the Village Baxter, mm-hmm. where we had numerous people, you know, in, in dozens of people who had the flu. Dozens of dozens people of had people. the flu. Absolutely. And we actually ended up uh, closing some wings. Yes. And, and we gowned yeah, qu- up. Qu- quarantine. Mm. Quarantine yeah. and mm. As up. did we. Mm. As you do for gastro. Yes, yes. In, indeed. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Sort of so in that environment, I understand it, you know, people, you know, quite elderly. But it's I'd, very dangerous for yeah. them. Yeah. yeah. And that, that's why we, we subscribe to the view that immunisation is the best form of defence. So at least you're controlling some of the elements. You are not going to control... You know, the biohazards of grandchildren coming in and affecting um, me or, or, mm. or anybody else. Mm. You know, you can only ask families to, to think about the issue. And certainly if you're under quarantine, then families will not be allowed in. Um, I, I presume you, you maintain we, that. We did. We so, encourage people to stay away. You know, and, and we, we practice full isolation. Mm. And that went on longer than it needed to be if we could have controlled some of the extraneous factors. I ask you to think about group consciousness because this is something that I'm interested in from a psychological point of view. You know, we hear advertising uh, that tells us, you know, one in X amount of women is going to develop breast cancer. Now, that is ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. And we hear it over and over until it becomes subliminal, until the, bo- the subconscious is so powerful you know, we can create 
dis-ease within our body mm. you know and it's all we've been hearing about is the flu the flu the flu until you know whether it's you know pr- have your prostate ke- i'm not saying don't have your tests but you know it's over we're being over bombarded by all these suggestions yeah. certainly if you look at last year's stats it was our worst flu epidemic uh, through a mortality rate and a hospitalization rate for many years and the government is probably rightly nervous uh, to try and avoid the same situation this year. And I, so you go back to post World War One. Well, that was died. Well, that was outrageous. Mm. Yeah. In yeah. that, in uh, that yeah. flip, in the war. correct? Yeah. They did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, was mm. awful. it was twenty million within the space of a, a year, yeah. wasn't it? In, mm. in that flu virus. Let's hope that never happens again. Mm. Ab- absolutely. Well. Now, now, as a society, we are mm. practicing better hand cleaning, hand washing. You know, all the basics. Um, but there is still people who are who are not immune, and we need to try and safeguard them. Peter, so well, what, are you doing to, at, what are you doing at Village Green? We are offering all our staff the flu. And have you had many taking it up? I, I understand. At the Village Glen, we, we only have a small staff. Yeah, oh, sorry, the, the broader Village Glen. But in the in the aged care side, yeah, we, uh, the bulk of them are taking it up. Yeah. Yeah. Which is well, a responsible thing. And I, I, I think it, certainly it is a personal choice. I struggle with the next question is if they don't take... What happens? What's our policy? Mm. Because, as I say, the, the elephant in the room is the visitors. And there are more visitors coming and going daily than there are staff coming and going daily. Yes. Well, so we, how do you control that? We, have, we would have here, Brendan, you know, people talking closely into microphones, lots of people coming and going... Um, so there's, mm. you know, the area to be, you know, yeah, things germs to be, yeah, of course, yeah, transported. Risk. So there's going to be risk anywhere, isn't there? Yeah. Oh, look, it's a risk minimisation strategy, I think. Mm. Um, and that, I don't, I don't have any philosophical problems with having injections, but some people do. Um, mm. And I don't have any problem with governments working out what what they think's best for the community. Some people do. Mm. I'm looking at you, Paul. Mm. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes. Drug companies. Yeah. Mm. Oh, I don't like it. <laughs> it pays yeah, to so carry the, the Glen 20 around. Yeah. So. The Glen 20. Oh, it's a good spray first thing in the morning whenever I mm. get on air. And good, yeah. mm. Wash the hands is a very good strategy. Another yeah. another very good strategy yeah. indeed. Yeah. Um, we've had a lot of correspondence in on, on the show over the last uh, few months or so, so I'm yeah. sure um, maybe this particular subject will um, elicit a little bit of a response as mm. well from some of our correspondents. Yeah, and we so, yeah. in, remind everybody that uh, we certainly do in, enjoy and encourage you to Get in touch with us here at the age stage. Yes, definitely. Um, gentlemen, I think we're just going to wrap this one up for this particular week. Thanks, we, Thank you very Thanks, much Paul. indeed. I'm not sure whether we've come to any hard and fast conclusions, but obviously there is a duty of care that you're very, very sensitive about. And I'm sure if there were any serious uh, health risk ramifications, if you have um, a flu vaccination policy in place, it's probably going to put you in a better place than if you didn't have it if it came to mm. answering questions about some serious outbreaks later on down the road. Mm. I think anywhere where you're dealing with people who, you know, are ill, like, you know, high care, tea tree or, mm-hmm. you know, um, then you'd have to consider it, yes. But yeah. I just think people should be given an option. The Age Stage is uh, what you're listening to. Thank you very much indeed for being there. 98.7, 98.3. It is your local radio station. We're very proud to be here. It is the week of volunteers as well, as we made the point earlier on, and or the week at least of volunteers. And uh, 
Ardor PFM is uh, fueled by volunteerism. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, the first of our guests, it's going to be uh, Annie Butler, and she's from the, or she's the Assistant Federal Secretary of the Australian Nursing and Midwifery Federation, and she indeed might uh, sort of rejoin the discussion we had earlier on in the program about uh, nursing ratios. We'll wait and see. Right now, we're going to take a bit of a break. We'll be back with more Age Date in just a moment. And welcome back to the Age Stage. I'd like to introduce now uh, Annie Butler. Annie is the Assistant Federal Secretary for the Australian Nursing and Midwifery Association. Welcome, Annie. Uh, thanks, Paula. Lovely to have you with us today. And we're joined as well by uh, Peter Nilsson from the Village Glen and Stuart Shaw from the Village Baxter. And we're going to have a discussion um, about... Um, care, um, age care ratios, Annie. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you think about that? Well, um, at the moment, of course, our union across the country is campaigning because we'd like to see mandated minimum staffing ratios implemented across the residential aged care sector. And we what do you actually mean by that, Annie? What, just explain to me what, what you mean exactly by that. So at the moment we think we don't think that there's any kind of requirement that really identifies uh, what staffing providers should have. Um, and so we conducted a major piece of research which we released in December 2016 where we looked at what the ideal staffing mix would be mm -hmm. and the ideal um, staffing levels. So what we'd like to see is a change, uh, a national change, a change to the National Act that required a minimum staffing ratio for both a, uh, a level of registered nurses and nurses in general, but also for personal care workers. Because what we hear at the moment from our members across the country, that the ratios are just, the staffing levels that exist are just, just unsustainable, can't be supported any longer, do not allow for residents to receive quality care across the board. We have no doubt that some providers are doing a very good job, but unfortunately we know that in many circumstances staff are trying their very best but the sorts of ratios that they're having to deal with just make it impossible. And it's Brendan here. Is that information that you're getting back, that feedback from your members, is that um, word of mouth or is that some sort of empirical study that you've carried out as the... As the... We've done both. We've done a, we've done a, a big piece of evidence-based research that was we commissioned, that was done jointly managed by our South Australian branch and the University of South Australia at Flinders University. And that was a three-part project that uh, looked at... What it looked at was, to put it simply, just looked at the sorts of care interventions that are needed across the sector. It broke down the sorts of residents that we see into six particular type of what we call resident profiles and then it looked at who should be giving that um, intervention and how long it should take. And so they sort of calculated the hours of care that are needed. So when we're talking about this to the community, we talk on a broad basis. We talk about an average care, care needs and average ratios. 
But our research is actually uh, much more complex than that. So that comes, we, that comes down to a pretty complex definition of care. Where is that definition of care coming from? Because I think this is sort of the crux of the matter, is it not? Yeah, so what we would say is that when we, of course, care is a cover-all cover term. We all care. Everybody has a role in caring, just about in every part of society, really. So when we talk about care, we do break it down into what's nursing care and what is personal care. We would argue that health care is a core component of aged care and needs to be addressed. We understand that we understand that 20 years ago there was a big shift towards the social model of care and that that had great intentions. Part of the problem is is that people tend to be going into nursing homes when they're older now. They are more complex. The way we would describe it, the acuity is higher. So their health care needs need to be met. Also, their personal care needs so need and, to be met. So, Annie, sometimes you'll have one nurse for how many residents? I can tell you it could be 50. I can tell you... One nurse per 50 residents. Uh-huh. Now, I'm talking about a nurse, right? That's Yes. A nurse, a nurse in a nursing home is managing the overall care. So, so they're not always doing all the direct care. So that's not the, that's not the carer ratio. Mm -hmm. But so a registered nurse who's responsible for the higher end healthcare needs should be overseeing all the medication, etc. Mm -hmm. I know in Queensland, an example of 1 to 115. I know of 1 to 200. I know quite a number of facilities throughout, particularly New South Wales and Queensland, when there's no registeredness at all. Okay, so if you look at the 1 to 100 or 1 to 200, so how many carers would be under her? That's variable. Mm -hmm. It could be, it could be, we hear 1 to 15, 1 to 16, 1 to 19, overnight 1 to 30. Um, our ideal for that is about one to seven, one to eight for a carer. Now, in Victoria, in state-run nursing homes, that is indeed the ratio. So bottom line of all this, Annie, is somebody's going to have to pick up the tab. Who are you suggesting should do that? Okay, there's a couple of sort of aspects to this. So one is we there's, there's a question... I think there's a question for us all to consider and answer about is this the type of service that should be heavily privatised and be put out there for people to make profit from or do we have a responsibility to our elderly citizens who years past built our society, made, made Australia what it is for us today, do we have a responsibility as a society to ensure a proper service are you them? Are you arguing that a nationalised health service is a better way of providing that care than a privatised? Uh, uh, probably we are. Um, I think, well, we, I'm not sure if you're aware that we, uh, just before the federal budget, released a report that we had commissioned looking into tax avoidance strategies by the very large for-profit aged care companies. Now, we're not saying what they do is illegal, not at all, they're, but we are saying that there are loopholes within the system that allow these companies to take 70% of their entire funding from the government, that means from the taxpayer, seek ways through all sorts of complex corporate structures, use of discretionary trusts, a range of 
activities to minimise their taxable income and therefore increase their profit. So are you, we, saying, are you saying that their drive for profit is basically upsetting their ability to care? That's exactly what we're saying. We don't think that's an appropriate way to approach the delivery of aged care in our country. We do think it's right for the government to provide funding. We agree with the Minister and a number of people in the sector that the funding model that we're using currently is not serving our needs. Um, And we totally agree that that needs to be changed. But in the first instance, before we say we need to just increase funding, what we're saying is we need to increase transparency. We need to make sure that money that comes from the taxpayer's pocket is tied directly to the provision of quality care so that we can be confident that every single elderly Australian living in a nursing home gets the care they need, whether that's personal care, nursing care or health care. And so how do you see that this is affecting the residents, in your opinion, Annie? Unfortunately, you may have seen a bit of recent media coverage. Unfortunately, we see and hear way too many stories about people who are just having their needs, what I would call neglected. We hear about rationing of resources such as incontinence pads. We hear that people aren't, they're not being attended to, they call a bell and this People just can't get there. We hear that in some places our members are being told they have to learn how to wash and feed, get up a resident, shower a resident in six minutes, which if you understand some of the conditions of frail elderly, that that's just not a reasonable approach. That, Annie, that sounds abhorrent. Are you saying that this is happening generally or these are specific cases or these are some few cases that you come across or is this endemic in the system? I'm saying the more we dig into it, the more we're finding out that it's endemic. What, what the is the extreme, so... Sorry, the extreme cases, there have been stories about elderly residents being found with maggots and extreme cases but this is also backed by evidence there's a piece of research done by, it's not just from our members telling us what's going on which I'm not for a minute suggesting is unreliable but also Monash University last year released a piece of research they'd done looking over the last 13 years at incidents in nursing homes and found that there had been a 400% increase in preventable deaths. So do you think there should be an inquiry into the industry, Annie? Is that what you're oh, saying? There's been so many inquiries. Mm. We could, we could, in our library, we can go back and pull out 15, you know, and and... What we're saying is we don't need any more inquiries. Actually, there is a Senate inquiry that's been announced into the financial and tax practices Mm -hmm. of large for-profit aged care providers. Mm -hmm. We think that's a reasonable thing, and they are going to look at uh, what's happening, what are their tax practices, and what are the impacts on care. So we do welcome that, but... We know the problem, and we have the solution. Okay, Annie. Well, thank you for talking to us today. Uh, that's a pleasure. And indeed, just quickly before you go, Annie, um, do you think what responsibility of the government here? Do they have to set an agenda? Um, is this a bipartisan approach that you're suggesting? We are asking every federal politician 
to what we think stand up. We think this is standing up and looking after everyone in their community and that means standing up for the elderly and looking to legislate for a minimum staffing requirement across the sector. The only person who's done it so far is Senator Darren Hitch. But we think everybody, every federal politician has a responsibility. Annie Butler, mm-hmm. thank you very much indeed for taking some time out and talking to us on Audible PFM in the age stage today. We appreciate your time. Thanks, Annie. It's a pleasure. Thanks thank so you. much for your Welcome back to the Age Stage. We're joined now by Anne Rileys. And Anne is uh, going to talk to us about um, volunteers and volunteering. Uh, That's right. Welcome, Anne. Thank you. Delighted to be here through National Volunteer Week. Yes, it's quite exciting, isn't it? Yes, it is. Because, Anne, now you're talking to us here at Ardor PFM, and we, of course, are, are driven by volunteers down here as well. So we yeah. are, we're in the same space, mm. Anne, and okay. uh, we understand what you're saying. So it is National Volunteer Week. And, of course, a lot of the work that you do at Dementia Australia is driven by volunteers as well. What do you do and how reliant are you on those volunteers? Well, um, uh, Dementia Australia uh, here in Victoria was founded by um, family carers who for many years volunteered their time um, before there was um, some government funding that came in to support what they were doing. So... um, uh, and essentially what we do is support people living with dementia. So um, those who have a diagnosis, um, family and friends and the broader community around them. And we also do a lot of work with um, health professionals and others in the sector. Mm-hmm. We deliver information, counselling, uh, support, education and we also um, advocate um, for people living with dementia and impacted by it. So how many um, volunteers would you have um, in your organisation working with dementia so, people, Anne? So right across um, Australia we have uh, 1,100 volunteers Goodness. and here in Victoria we have 85. Wow. And have you noticed a decrease or, or you know, have you noticed it becoming harder to, you know, gather volunteers to work with dementia patients? Actually, it's quite um, it's quite the opposite. Yeah. Um, well, that's good uh, to hear. We um, we place such a value on our volunteer program um, where it, we want to develop roles that are really um, wonderful for the volunteers and that they find stimulating and fulfilling. Um, and we also um, uh, want those roles to be really very helpful for people impacted by dementia. So we find ourselves in a position of actually not being able to um, take on um, more volunteers uh, simply because, um, uh, you know, we want to make sure that they're, at, they're adequately supported. And our volunteers are based in, in um, so of the 85 volunteers that we currently have that are active with us, 20 of those are in um, regional locations and we offer 24 different volunteer opportunities. Mm. That's fantastic. Sort of what age groups are your volunteers, um, and Because here at RPPFM, we're, we're finding that uh, volunteers are, are getting a little bit older. The millennials are, are interested. They come in, they do their turn, but they don't seem to be quite as committed as the older volunteer. Is that your mm. experience? Um, it depends a little bit on the role, actually. Um, so, uh, so a lot of our volunteers are also community fundraisers. Um, and uh, uh, we have, in terms of uh, our celebration of National Volunteer Week, issued a media release where we talk about a young um, 
primary school student, Esther Worthington, who's recently volunteered her time to fundraise uh, for Dementia Australia in honour of her grandmother, Denise, who was diagnosed with dementia in 2007 mm. and, and passed away four years ago. Um, now, what Esther did is mobilise her friends who also volunteered their time, baked cakes and muffins and chocolate crackles and sold them at a cake store, and she raised $730 for Dementia Australia. So... Um, she's one of our younger um, uh, volunteers. And how old is um, she? Uh, well, she's, I'm, I'm not quite sure, but I do know that she was in primary school. So. Oh, goodness. Yeah, mm. that's pretty wonderful, isn't it? Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. And do you have training? Like, do you have, you know, are there, I'm sure there are lots of people who would like to help dementia patients, but it's a very specific area too, isn't it? Yes, it is, and we used to, we've changed the way, um, because we've got uh, such a high number of different volunteering opportunities, we've changed the way we do that. We used to bring people in um, and do a, a, a an annual um, induction activity. Mm. We now do very, very tailored induction, yes. um, wherein we um, help volunteers to um, understand uh, what dementia is, what the services the organisation uh, offers are and then give them the skills that they need. I'm, I'm just wondering about, uh, we're reading a lot in the press these days about dementia and so on and mm. care of older patients. Um, are you seeing more pressures, more strains on you in this sector? Look, you're right. Uh, dementia is the second leading cause of death is of all Australians and it's actually the leading cause of death among Australian females. You know, there's now an estimated 425,416 Australians living with dementia. Wow. It's a huge um, number. And the, the, uh, the reason I ask that, Anne, is I'm just wondering whether th- th- there seems to be a policy as well in terms of keeping people at home and domesticated, if you will, um, mm. rather than bringing them into care. And I'm just wondering whether that might be, as a policy, putting more pressure on you in that sector as well. We're very fortunate uh, in terms of the services we offer, um, we support people uh, impacted by dementia in whatever the environment is. So you're right, many many people, in fact, I've never met one person that said to me, I really want to go into an aged care facility. Mm, mm. Um, most people, I think, do want to remain at home. Um, and what services like, uh, what organisations like ours try to do is to support people if that is their wish to um, to remain at home or to care for a loved one at home. But where, do, where um, does that conversation with them end? I mean, given the fact that um, they might not have quite the faculties that they once enjoyed. Mm. What we encourage people to do uh, when they do receive a diagnosis of dementia or it's actually really beneficial for us all to do it is to do that planning for the future to communicate their mm. wishes with yeah. their loved ones um, ahead of time and particularly in the case of dementia whilst one is cognitively intact and has the capacity to make those choices known. And yet, um, because you're right, it is a progressively deteriorating condition, yes, yeah. and which I, means people will lose their, their cognitive capacity over time. And so is there a, an assessment done at a certain point then that, um, so let's say the family can bring some, a third party in to assess their loved ones so that they don't actually have to make that decision themselves yeah there mm. is there's a whole um there are a range of services that do uh what we call capacity assessments mm-hmm. um 
but in many cases, it it um, uh, if if people impacted if, if when they receive a diagnosis of dementia, if they get good information, support, and education initially, if they put all of those plans in place, then um, and those plans are in relation to um, identifying powers of attorney. Mm. Um, uh, advanced care plans, all of these kinds of things. Mm. If these um, are put in place and there's good communication with family members, then those wishes can be um, met as the as the condition um, uh, progresses. And the, and the wonderful thing is, of course, that your volunteers have the skills and the ability to guide people and families, I guess, through these very difficult decisions and discussions as well. They do. We um, uh, we have uh, a range of professional staff, um, and and the work that we do is also very much complemented by our volunteers. Mm, yes, very interesting. And so, your volunteers um, and do they uh, have to do mental training? Like, you know, do you get any volunteers from um, people who are studying in the psychiatric area? Yes, we do. Yeah, we do. We we get quite a lot of. Um, uh, of students yes. um, uh, coming to us because they can see um, how um, valuable the experience of actually mm. working directly with uh, people with dementia and their families might be for their studies. Yes. Um, usually, though, I, I would have to say our, the majority of our volunteers come to us because they've been personally impacted by dementia themselves. Well, yes. that would be an incredible motivation, yeah. I'm sure, Anne. Anne Riley yeah. uh, from Dementia thank Australia, you, we thank you so much indeed for your time today. Congratulations on the work you do. And in this, of course, National Volunteer Week, very uh, pertinent that we be speaking to you. Thanks, Anne. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks, Brendan. Thanks, Th- Paula. Bye. Thank you very much for your time. Another week gone, Brendan. Indeed, Paula. Thank you very much indeed. Once again, thank interesting. You. Thank you for allowing me to be back here with you in the age stage. And uh, we'll do it all again next week. I we guess. will. Yes. Bye for now.